want to invite you to listen, open your mind, and open your hearts to the Word of God from the Gospel of Luke. And um, even if you don't read along, just listen right now and we'll, we'll dig into the text. But let's hear, let's hear the, the story as Luke shares it and as the Spirit of God reveals it. So many others have tried their hand at putting together a story of the wonderful harvest of Scripture and history that took place among us, using reports handed down by the original eyewitnesses who served this Word with their very lives. Since I've investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. During the rule of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest assigned service in the regiment of Abijah. His name was Zechariah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Together they lived honorably before God, careful in keeping to the ways of the commandments and enjoying a clear conscience before God. But they were childless because Elizabeth could never conceive, and now they were quite old. It so happened that as Zechariah was carrying out his priestly duties before God, working the shift assigned to his regiment, it, it came his one turn in life to enter the sanctuary of God and burn incense. The congregation was gathered and praying outside the temple at the hour of the incense offering. Unannounced, an angel of God appeared just to the right of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was paralyzed in fear. But the angel reassured him, Don't fear, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, your wife, will bear a son for you, and you're to name him John. And you're going to leap like a gazelle for joy, and not only you, but many will delight in his birth. He'll achieve great stature with God. He'll drink neither wine nor beer. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment he leaves his mother's womb. He will turn many sons and daughters back to Israel, back to God. And he will herald God's arrival in the style and strength of Elijah. Soften the hearts of parents to children. Kindle devout understanding among hardened skeptics. He'll get the people ready for God. Zacharias said to the angel, Do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man, and my wife is an old woman. But the angel said, I am Gabriel, the sentinel of God, sent especially to bring you this glad news. But because you won't believe me, you'll be unable to say a word until the day of your son's birth. Every word I've spoken to you will come true on time. God's time. Meanwhile, the congregation was waiting for Zechariah. They were getting restless, wondering what was keeping him so long in the sanctuary. And when he came out and he couldn't speak, they knew that he had seen a vision. He continued speechless. He had to use sign language to communicate with the people. And when the course of his priestly assignment was completed, he went back home. It wasn't long before his wife Elizabeth conceived. And she went off by herself for five months, enjoying her pregnancy. She said, so this is how God acts to remedy my unfortunate condition. 
Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would be with us, open our minds, open our hearts, open our spirits to receive your spirit. And may this word have its way with us so that we hear it as if it's a word from an angel because we know it is inspired by your spirit. And Father, I pray that we will be obedient to whatever it is that you call us to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Next four weeks, we're going to take a look at the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells you his agenda. He tells you what he has in mind. Whoever this Theophilus is, Luke has decided that he wants Theophilus to be both a believer and he wants Theophilus to have a certain knowledge in these things. And we take those two ideas of believing and knowing and we've we've subjected them to a divorce so that believing is over here on one side and knowing's over here on the other side as logan said this is the season for believing everybody's got belief statements out i've even seen holiday decorations that simply say i believe of course it's vague what you believe in do you believe in god do you believe in jesus do you believe in santa do you believe in the magic of christmas Do you believe in the Krampus? I mean, what is it that you're actually believing in? It's just, I believe. Oh, and isn't that touching? We believe. I believe too. And we all have warm, fuzzy feelings because we believe. And then it goes away with the decorations come January. Believing's not bad. Believing is important. He also wants Theophilus to know certain things. And so he's carefully investigated it. He's he's digging in. He's talking to people. He wants to know what they saw. He wants to know what they experienced. And then he wants to share that with Theophilus. And I like the way Peterson does it in his translation. He wants Theophilus to get this account, this record, this investigation, so that he can know beyond a shadow of a doubt the reality of what you were taught. Knowledge can be, knowledge when it's separated from belief can get pretty dry and stale. Okay? Knowledge when it's separated out from belief can become nothing more than a set of facts, a set of principles. And so we ask ourselves, what must I know to be saved? And we reduce that down to a formula the same way that someone knows how to. bake Christmas cookies or the same way that somebody knows how to uh, repair an engine. And it all becomes so mechanical that belief isn't there. But when you take belief and knowledge and you bring them together, then it creates something that we might call trust. It creates a disciple who both believes but has some knowledge, has some confidence and reliability and conviction. This is what Luke wants for Theophilus. And while we, do, while we go through this study, I, I'm going I'm to ask you, I'm going to invite you, just assume that you're Theophilus, the one who loves God, and maybe you too can have that knowledge beyond a shadow of a doubt. 
And isn't it interesting that the story he begins with, the opening story in this investigation, in this report, in this documentary, is Zechariah. Zechariah is the perfect person to begin with. Because here's Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you, and you read what he, how does he describe them? Well, we never really get past old, and, and, and immediately we think we've heard this story before. Yeah, it's Abraham and Sarah, okay. But Abraham wasn't a priest like Zechariah. So Zechariah's got his own identity also. Zechariah and Elizabeth are steeped in the traditions of Israel. In fact, I noticed something reading this just this morning that I'd never noticed before. That Elizabeth was descended from the daughters of Aaron. That means she comes out of a very religious family, a very dedicated religious family. She's related to priests. Zechariah is a priest. And the way you get to be a priest is because your father was a priest. Because you're part of that priestly tribe. Because you're descended from that priestly family. This is another take on a kind of a royalty within Israel. They're dedicated, set-apart servants. And they have to know how to keep the traditions of the temple. They have to know the ordinances. They have to know the rituals and the ceremonies. And they've got it so worked out that they have regiments. They have divisions of people that are assigned to these duties. Wow. It sounds like the military. And it's not unlike the military. They are dedicated to this as their service to God's people. And so the lot comes up. It's Zechariah's turn. It sounds a bit random, and there's some randomness in this. But his regiment, his division, his group, his family, whatever you want to call it, they are the ones who are on assignment in Jerusalem. And he knows what he's supposed to do. He understands what is expected of him. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 30. And in Zechariah's day, they didn't even have chapter numbers. You had to know the whole thing. And morning and night, someone has to go in front of the altar of incense and put incense there and, and burn that in the presence of God. Now, now I know that um, you know, all that temple talk used to always uh, just get me confused. So I want you to imagine it. I want you to imagine it. You're there with Zechariah. Now, just pretend that right here we're in that temple, okay? And that this is the layout of the temple that's in Jerusalem. And everybody knows. I mean, they've known for generations that this is the place where God gets his mail, okay? This is the place where God picks up the messages that are given to him, okay? And there's something special there because the Ark of the Covenant is in that place. And it is, you've got to get through a few different doors to get to that Ark of the Covenant. So out there would be the outer courts and that's where everybody's gathered together to pray. And people are gathered up for the religious ceremonies, the religious duties. Uh, Everybody wants to pray because that's the way Solomon dedicated this temple. He said it, God, he wanted it, he asked God to let it be a place where when people came together and prayed, or if they weren't even nearby, if they would pray and if they would, would you know, just put themselves spiritually in orientation with that temple, the, the desire was is that God will hear their prayer. 
And so you go from the outer courts then, and let's, let's just assume that right in here, this area where all of you are sitting, this is the holy place. Now that's special. That would mean that all of you are priests. And you are, in a way. Uh, but that, that's New Testament. But anyway, but, but, but you're all priests. So we're all priests, and we've got our, and there's, there's, there's temple furniture. Hey, just like what we've got. We've got pulpits, and we've got tables, and we've got serving trays. And we say, there's nothing special about those. Yeah, but we don't use them for anything else. But theirs would be a little more special. And so they've got their furniture. And just imagine for a moment that this back here, this is not only the holy place, this is the holy of holies. And there's a big, huge curtain there. In fact, maybe we ought to make the holy of holies back there where the baptistry is. Because, see, we've got a curtain covering it up. Because back there, that's, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where God's glorious presence dwells and we don't go there because he's holy and we're not every once in a while a high priest goes in there but the rest of us we're going to stay out in fact i wonder if sometimes that whole draw i don't know everything about that drawing lots is to figure out who's going to go up close to that in some ways it seems like hey who gets the honor who gets the privilege and in other ways, it might be who has to defuse the bomb, you know, because this, this requires hazard pay. Um, but that, that curtain is there. Well, right in front of the curtain would be that altar, right in front of it. And there would be incense smoke coming off of it, because if you read the story when Solomon dedicates the temple, the temple... God shows his favor by filling it with his presence, and it's like a cloud, a cloud that pushes everybody out. It's so thick, that's God's presence. So this incense signifies so many things. It's God's presence. It's the prayers going up into heaven. And Zechariah is supposed to go there and take care of all that and keep it going just like someone did the day before, just like he'll do the next day, morning and night, morning and night, morning and night, somebody has to keep that incense burner going so that all of us who are gathered together for worship can get our prayers into God. And that's what's expected. What is not expected is is for anyone to come out from outside that curtain. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, you know, there's kind of a contract here. God, you stay behind the curtain. We'll stay on this side. And we're good. We're good. Because even as much, you know, we all the talk about we're not worthy to go behind the curtain. We're not worthy to go behind the curtain. None of us are holy. Hey, let's admit it. The other thing is we don't want God coming out from behind that curtain. Because when that happens, there's no telling what he'll do. I mean, he might wake up and suddenly start having ideas of his own. Changing things on us that we didn't expect. By the way, it's interesting that Luke starts with this story. Because towards the end, that location right there where that altar of incense is, that's the same location where that veil is going to be torn open. When Christ is crucified. I don't think that's a coincidence. And neither do you, I'm sure. That somehow that barrier is broken down. Well, not somehow. It's broken down by the power of God. Here are the people gathered for prayer. Everyone knows what to expect. 
Zechariah is standing right in front of the altar to make sure that everybody's prayers get through. And then when this angel appears, Zechariah looks at his bulletin and he realizes, wait, this isn't in the order of worship. This wasn't supposed to happen like this. And probably his first thought is, an angel showed up. I must have gotten this wrong. That's it. I'm a dead man. We don't know all of his thoughts, but Luke says, and he gathered this up from somebody, maybe even Zechariah himself, is that Zechariah is paralyzed with fear. He has his fears. And and Gabriel's first word is to put him at ease. Don't be afraid. One of the first lessons that you learn in angel training school is that that people think that you're scary because you show up with the power of God, which is an incredible, awesome force. So the first thing you say to human beings is don't be afraid. Some of you right now are wondering where I got that scripture about angel training school. I made it up. Okay, I'm just telling you, you you get the point. Watch what angels do when they appear before people. The first line is, don't be afraid. Um, And in fact, Gabriel wants Zechariah to know that this is a good day. And that God has arranged all this. And maybe that casting of lots was to set everything up in God's time to say, Zechariah, we know in heaven that you and elizabeth have been asking for a child this is good because we've heard this story before haven't we abraham and sarah samson's parents angel shows up to them says you're going to have a child it's going to be a special child he's going to save his people he's going to deliver israel from their enemies uh hannah goes up to the temple and prays she can't have children but god's going to give her a child samuel he's going to become a leader in israel over and over again we've heard this story where supposedly there's barrenness but god brings life into it zechariah is a smart fellow he's a devout fellow he ought to pick up on this he, he knows the story of abraham and sarah how can he not know the story of abraham and sarah it is their origin story it's their founding story so even though he's afraid he's being reassured that his prayers are being answered but he has doubts. Not even doubts about what he's seen. Later on, he and the people will all agree, yeah, you, something happened in there. It was a vision, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a vision. But he's got doubts. Listen to what Zechariah says. Do you expect me to believe this? <laughs> he, he, he believes something's going on there, but to own it, to know what this means, to accept that this means him. And I don't think Zechariah is being ugly or rude or sinful. In, sac- in fact, I-, I think, can't we have a lot of sympathy for Zechariah? Zechariah and Elizabeth, but Zechariah at this moment, represents people who are doubtful and question God whenever it's clear that God's ready to move or make a change. Not because we doubt God, but because we doubt us. I mean, look at the nature of Zechariah's doubt. 
God, you sure that I'm the one you want to be talking to? Gabriel, you sure it's me? Because my wife and I are pretty old. I like what you're doing, God, but maybe that's for someone else. I like this idea, but it's just not going to work. Folks, how many times do we see what God is doing? We tell stories day in, day out about what God is doing. We know our scriptures. We know our Bible. We see God active among us. But yet our doubts, our focus on flaws and deficiencies, keep us from hearing the good word of God. Oh boy, God's just arranged everything. He set us up. Look at the way he put us right next to that campus. We could reach that campus. We've got opportunities to reach out there. Yeah, but young people don't want to come to church. Oh. Well, God hadn't thought about that. You know, we look at our deficiencies. We, we tell ourselves the negative narrative that the world's too dangerous, that people don't care anymore, that it used to be different in my day. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough people. Celebrate recovery starting on January 1st. Boy, that's great. I don't know. Do we have enough people interested in that? Are we going to have enough people to lead it? Uh, Maybe we ought to wait until we're ready to get that started. How many people are enough? I'm just saying that maybe it's our own religious habits that sometimes become the veil or the curtain that keep us from experiencing what God would want to do with us. I'm not saying they're bad. There's nothing wrong with that curtain in the temple. There's nothing wrong with the temple. God wanted all that. He asked for all that. But when all of that becomes our restraining order on God, then we've put God in His corner and aren't allowing him to rip that thing open and come out. So no wonder Zechariah has fears. But he's also the perfect person to start this story with. Because maybe he expects Theophilus to realize. I mean, Theophilus' name means the friend of God, the one who cares about God. But he wants Theophilus to have some certainty at the same time. Maybe there's a lot of similarity between Theophilus and Zechariah. Both good, godly, religious people. Maybe there's a lot of similarity between us and Zechariah. Well, but, but, but why, why does the angel have to go that far and make Zechariah lose his voice? That seems a bit harsh. Angel said, I'm Gabriel, the sentinel of God, sent especially to bring you this glad news. I've often wondered how that sounds, I am Gabriel. I like to imagine that Gabriel's got a bit of indignation there. And in a Samuel L. Jackson kind of voice, he says, I am Gabriel. It's like, don't you get it? I'm the sentinel of God. But since you don't believe, you're just going to keep your mouth shut. 
And it's actually a sign of grace because Zechariah, honestly, it's keeping him from saying something he's going to regret later, I think. Because he has nothing good to say yet. I'm not saying he's going to say anything bad. It's just that he has nothing good to say. He's not ready. He's got to wait for God's time. And then he's going to have a message. And everyone believes he has seen a vision. Even the people waiting outside know that something has happened. It's like Moses coming off the mountain after Moses uh, encountered God. Everybody knows. I mean, his face would glow. They, they, they knew that there was something going on here. But they're not sure what it means yet. How do they tell it? And so you, you, you jump ahead a few verses to that story of John's birth. And they're going to name him at the circumcision. And the circumcision, of course, is going to bring John into the tradition of God's people. And you would think that John's going to get the name Zechariah, and he's going to be a priest just like his father, and he's going to continue all the traditions. But they're changing the rules. Everybody thinks, well, you know, this is going to be Zechariah Jr. I mean, why not? There's a lot of Zacharias in their family. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were calling him Zechariah after his father, but his mother intervened. No, his name is going to be John. Uh, But they said, no one in your family is named that. So they're using sign language to communicate with Zechariah. What do you want him to be named? And maybe they can ask him, but he's got to try to get it back to them somehow. John, not Zechariah. And no matter how many signs he makes, they're going, see, he said Zechariah. No, he said John. No, he said Zechariah. Zechariah is the best name. Finally, he writes it down. His name is John. And that takes everybody by surprise. Zechariah's mouth is now open. His tongue is loose. And he starts talking, and the first thing he does is praise God. He sings a song. He goes to worship. He worships. You'd think this is just natural for Zechariah, but this is a new kind of worship. A deep reverential fear settled over the neighborhood. Everyone in the Judean hill country talked about nothing else. Everyone who heard about it took it to heart. Zechariah's worship song moves everyone. What will this child become? And then they say this, clearly, God has a hand in this. There's a witness here. Here's Zechariah's song. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he sings a song. He, he, He utters a prophecy. And by the way, it's made up of other prophecies. It's, it's, it's made up of, of Psalm 34, 67, 103, 113. I mean, this is Zechariah's original, but he's also taking parts from other things. It's a psalm salad, but it's got, it's, it's got a, new, a new flavor at the same time. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He came and set his people free. He set the power of salvation in the center of our lives and in the very house of David, his servant, just as he promised long ago. Through the preaching of his holy prophets, deliverance from our enemies, and every hateful hand, mercy to our fathers. As he remembers to do what he said he would do. What he swore to our father Abraham, a clean rescue from the enemy camp. So we can worship him without a care in the world made holy before him as long as we live. 
And you, my child, prophet of the highest, will go ahead of the master to prepare his ways. Present the offer of salvation to his people, the forgiveness of their sins through the heartfelt mercies of our God. God's sunrise will break in upon us, shining on those in darkness, those sitting in the shadow of death, then showing us the way, one foot at a time, down the path of peace. When they name the child John, Zechariah and Elizabeth are saying, this child represents the grace of God. His name means Yahweh is gracious. Gracious to them in their old age that they should have a child. Gracious to Israel that God has stepped in and is drawing his people back to them. This child will preach and turn people back to God. And it's all about God's grace. It's also a commissioning for John. That he's not going to follow the traditions of his father. He's not going to be a priest like his father. But he'll be a prophet like Elijah. And yet... John doesn't get there without the old. And the old doesn't have a future without the new. There's two things in Zechariah's song I want us to take to heart. That when we're like Zechariah and we hear clearly what God is saying, and if we will just shut our own mouths before we jump on it and explain to God that it cannot be, (laughs) takes a little discipline there, but we can help each other with that. If we just wait, then we might be able to sing songs where we can say, God set the power of salvation, where? Right in the center of our lives. God moved into the neighborhood. God has come close. God is right here. I mean, they're only seeing a glimmer of what you and I should know. That John's going to come forth and say the Messiah's on his way. And, 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 and they don't even know what to put that in yet. But we know, we know the story that John prepares the way for the Messiah. And the Messiah is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has come near. And he's not behind some curtain. He's not walled off from us by some function of religious ceremony. But His power of salvation is right in the center of our lives. And what I want you to do today is, I don't want you to just turn off the religion meter today when you walk out of here. That was good. We had a good Sunday worship. Didn't last too long. All right. We didn't have to be too anxious. And uh, now we can go on about our lives. God wasn't in here. Christ wasn't in here like he's in some elder home somewhere waiting for you good boys and girls to show up and be kind to him. He's here, he's out there, he's with you, he's in you. He's put his salvation right in us. Second thing, Zechariah now can open his mouth and he can say, we can worship him without a care in the world. Think about it. This is the man who thought He was probably dead. He was right in front of the holiest place on earth. He sees the angel Gabriel and he says, that's it, I'm a goner. I mean, if he's gripped with that kind of fear, then then he knows there's something scary about all this. But now he sees things differently and he says, wait, we can worship him without a care in the world. Now, I don't think that means that Zechariah is glib. 
You don't see him at this moment handing out cigars because his kid is born saying, hey, me and God, we're buddies now, just like that. We go golfing. That God, he's a great guy. Let me tell you, wait till you meet his son. He doesn't do that. This isn't glib. This isn't, this isn't stupid and silly. This is Zechariah realizing that God loves him and that God loves us. And I tell you, if there's one thing that I'm seeing, the real changes in worship, because there have been times in my life that I've heard people say, we need worship to be more like this. It's not changing fast enough. Or I've heard people say, we need worship to be like this. It's just going too slow. I mean, we need to get back to the old ways. Things are changing too much. But where you really see the change in worship and the meaning of worship is when people say, I used to think that God hated me or was out to get me, but now I know he cares. And when that happens, we realize just how much we can truly worship because the gratitude pours forth, the thankfulness pours forth, and and that's what worship is, expressing gratitude and thanks to God for what he's done. And then we are made holy before him. We don't have to get dressed up and holy to go see God, but as we go and see God, he constantly makes us holy in worship when we assemble and in worship as we live out his calling. These are some things that we ought to know and believe. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would be with us, that uh, we would realize the wisdom in the fact that you gave us two ears and one mouth so that we can listen before we speak. And I pray that the voice that we're listening to is your voice, your spirit. That somehow you get that message through to us, that we hear your word preached, we hear your word sung, we hear your word in our hearts as we pray, we hear your word. But as we hear that word, we accept it. And Lord, we confess to you, we've got doubts, and we've got worries, and we're even afraid. But we know that you don't despise that. We know that you're patient and gentle with us. And I pray that we'll be like Zechariah and that eventually our silence and our doubt and our fear is turned into a song of praise so that we can see the power of salvation you've set in our lives and so that we can worship you without a care in the world as we're made more and more holy. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. How can we encourage you today? There's going to be shepherds down here. There's going to be shepherds back there in the room with pews in it. If there's just some way we can encourage you, we want to know how. But let's stand and let's give thanks to God in this song.